Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now. Your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Wednesday, April 24th. I'm Sophie Cases. Today, we're talking about how one massive utility company is responsible for many of California's wildfires and dozens of deaths. When I think of California wildfires, which have been the worst in history in these past few years, my first thoughts are that this is the devastating result of climate change. And that's true. But one vice writer has pointed out that specifically, the thing that is responsible for starting many of these massive fires can be traced to a major infrastructure problem. Old, unmaintained power lines that are failing under the pressure of a growing state and more extreme climate-changed weather. So on this episode, I sat down with reporter and illustrator Susie Cagle to discuss the role of Pacific Gas and Electric Company, the largest utility company in California, in starting wildfires, and asked, can we make our infrastructure stop killing us? Hey, Susie, how are you? I'm doing well, Sophie. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, well, thank you so much for calling in from California. Yeah, currently not on fire for the moment. Yes, currently not on fire. But as you know personally from being out there in California, the past few years have seen some really sort of terrifying and and tragic wildfires. You know, it's gotten really bad. Tens of thousands of homes were destroyed. Hundreds of people were killed. And in your story, you write about how one of the main causes of these fires, the actual thing that is causing the spark, sort of in addition to the conditions that climate change has created and is creating, is actually sort of rickety, old, unmaintained power lines. So to start us off, can you give us a sense of how serious this problem is through some numbers? Yeah. You know, the the story that I wrote really focuses largely on one uh, one power company. It's the largest power company in America, Pacific Gas and Electric. But it's not just PG&E that's starting these fires. California officials have said that PG&E was responsible for starting 17 out of 21 of the major wildfires just in 2017. And they're still investigating a lot of the fires in, in 2018. So we don't we don't know final cause for, for a lot of those. But um, those fires alone in 2017 burned more than 185,000 acres. Wow. And I you know a lot of that land is in, you know, parts of the state where there aren't a lot of people. It's in wildland areas. But that's a, just a huge portion of the state. And, of course, every time one of these fires burns, even if it doesn't kill someone or it doesn't burn down a community, it is burning down land that is itself a carbon sink. And it's releasing tons of 
tons of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere itself and causing a lot of pollution just in terms of the fire. So the last few years have been incredibly destructive, but I do think it's, it, it is an important point that I want to make that it's actually, it is all of the power infrastructure. For PG&E, there was a power company in, in Southern California and San Diego that started a fire several years ago. It was very destructive. And Southern California Edison, which provides power throughout you know, central coastal California and a lot of Los Angeles, they're alleged to have started fires over the last couple of years too. So it's, it's our, all of our infrastructure is really in, in a dire state. Yeah, so I guess a big question that came up for me when reading your story is that many of, of the more progressive states, you know, like California, which you're specifically talking about in your story, have presented various visions for kind of a greener future and talked a lot about switching over to renewables down the line. And then you present this reality that in the meantime, even while these conversations are happening, these same states are failing to do kind of the necessary maintenance on the old electric grid and and these old power lines. And I'm curious, like, why does this dynamic exist? I think that generally, not just not just in California or the West, but kind of in America, we have a we have kind of a distaste for maintenance. We want the future and we don't spend a lot of time, not nearly enough time thinking about and working on the present. So we have these visions for what we want the future infrastructure to be. We want it to be this wonderful green renewable paradise, but the same kinds of energy is just not going into maintaining what we've already got, which is the only way that we're going to survive to see any time where we can make that wonderful green renewable paradise. I guess what was so sort of striking to me about reading your story is that, you know, I'm here in New York, I'm not in California, and and possibly that is the reason for this reaction. But when I was reading your piece, I felt like I really hadn't read a lot about this facet of the wildfires and sort of reading about PG&E and the electric grid not being maintained. It felt like kind of a first for me. And I don't know, again, if that's just because I'm over here in New York, but I'm curious if you have thoughts about why this element is sort of not talked about as much. I think that over the last several years, it hasn't, it hasn't been talked about very much, especially on a national scale. I mean, of course, I'm in California. I grew up in Southern California. Both of my parents live in, in fire-risky places, my father's house burned down when he when he was growing up and he he you know his family rebuilt he still lives there so for me i have i have a very different in many ways kind of warped perspective on this um, where to me this seems this has seemed like a huge story for for a very long time but of course this is you know california is a massive and growing state but um, but it doesn't affect everyone and i do think that even a lot of times our stories about fire are about the horrific impact of it. There are a lot of visuals. We see how terrible fire is. But these investigations into what started a fire can take months, if not years, certainly years in terms of, you know, they can figure out what started the fire, but it might take them years to to place blame, really. Mm-hmm. It's a somewhat complicated thing to talk about. It's also boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's 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 much yeah. sexier to think about that these fires were started by arson. And every time there is a 
there has been a wildfire in California over the last couple of years. I feel like I'm, I'm always watching social media because that's where a lot of the updates are. A lot of times, you know, trying to figure out if my, my family and my friends are safe in various parts of the state. And there are always people speculating that this is arson. And very rarely is anyone speculating that this is badly maintained infrastructure that we all rely on <laughs> because that's just, that's so mundane. And I think in a lot of ways, that's scarier. Right. It's scarier to think that the things that, that we all need to just live our everyday lives are maybe going to kill us and destroy our entire neighborhood. Yeah. That's much scarier than one person acting alone to do a, a terrible crime. The campfire seemed like a turning point because very early on there were reports that people had seen flames you know, right by power poles and, and transformers and that it just, you know, they still haven't ruled the cause of the fire uh, at the time that, you know, we were talking about this, but people made that connection much earlier than, than they have, I think, in the past. And after the last couple of years of really giant fires, it just seemed like this was enough pressure to, to turn, turn the tides on, on PG&E. Yeah, I think as someone who's been paying attention to this through national media, a lot of what I read about is climate change. And I think what is complicated about PG&E's response to being accused of starting many of these fires is that they put all the blame on climate change. And they said, you know, this isn't us, this is climate change, and kind of absolved themselves of responsibility in that way. Obviously, it is more complicated than that. But my question is sort of why wasn't this company more regulated? I mean, I do think that it is about, you know, why do they why do they keep getting away with it? They are regulated by a state commission, but there's a lot of behavior that is just kind of deemed acceptable. There's enough failure in the system that you can get away with when you're a company that's as big as PG&E and on which so many people rely. I mean, PG&E's case is that they can't afford to update the system perhaps as much as they might like, certainly not as much as a federal judge has, has suggested that they that they need to update the system. Mm-hmm. And that's because they've declared bankruptcy? I uh, No, it's because they say they can't afford it at all. Okay. They've got... $30 billion in holdings, and that's as much as the liabilities might cost them for these fires. And they're saying that this judge who wants them to, you know, check every mile of line and update every pole and cut every tree that needs to be cut, that that would cost $150 billion. And in the grand scheme of things, if you want to not burn down the state, that's probably a good investment. But if you're a private company who has to answer to shareholders, you want to make money and you're not going to invest $150 billion that you don't have in updating infrastructure that by law, in terms of your liabilities, you don't necessarily have to have to update. Even if PG&E were found guilty of starting every fire, burning down every house, killing every person, it would be cheaper for them to pay those lawsuits than for them to update the entire system to that degree. So when we think about the root problem here, is it that PG&E is a private company? 
I guess it depends how far we want to go down in terms of the root problem. Mm -hmm. Because I think at the same time, no one is good at, at maintaining infrastructure. Right. I think that, you know, if, if PG&E were taken over by the state, we don't know what the state's plan would be for updating all of that infrastructure. We would hope that the public, you know, and certainly this is the position of the DSA and, and other groups that want to see PG&E at least taken under under receivership and, and ideally made into a, a public entity, that there would be more accountability and there would be more direct regulation by the people, that there wouldn't just be this commission that gets to make the rules. But asking the state to invest $150 billion in something as unsexy as power poles, I don't know what that might look like. Yeah. So it's, it's tough. I mean, it's this intractable and incredibly dangerous situation that, that California is living with. And that's just, that's just the reality. Yeah. To go back for a second, is PG&E bankrupt? Have they declared that? PG&E has declared bankruptcy. They've filed for bankruptcy. Okay. And that's something that's still playing out in the courts. And, you know, the details of that are going to be um, structured by, by a judge in bankruptcy court. Mm-hmm. That's something that consumer groups are trying to be a part of. They, they want to get in there and, you know, testify to PG&E's alleged crimes over the years and, and try to make the case that this bankruptcy shouldn't be a bailout for a, a privately held company. Yeah. So I feel like at this point, I want to note that you are not just a writer, but also a drawer, and that this article is unique because it's part print and it's also part comic, which is super cool. And at one point, you draw a comic that's titled The Solar Death Spiral. And I feel like that's an important part of this story, which is sort of how people have reacted to having a sort of shaky power grid and then how that goes back and affects PG&E and, and how they respond. So can you describe the solar death spiral? Yeah. So, of course, when you have such terrible infrastructure, um, people, especially a lot of people in California who have a little bit more money, want to invest in that greener ideal future that we're all supposed to supposed to be working for. So people have been trying to do that on an individual scale with installations of solar but and this is a this is a dynamic that has played out in a lot of places around the country. Power companies are terrified of losing all of those potential customers. Those people that are paying that are ratepayers right now are suddenly going to create their own power, and then they're not going to buy into the system anymore. So the this is kind of the theory behind what makes power companies fight solar installers. So this. This theory of the solar death spiral is that each customer who installs and uses their own solar power no longer needs to buy power from the utility. So that's fewer people that the utility is providing power to, and they need to raise rates on all of the remaining customers. So then those customers look at the savings they can get from solar and they say, hey, I'm going to install solar too. So more and more people start installing solar and then there are fewer rate payers have to pay even more to make up for the fact that there are fewer fewer of them and uh, just on and on until I guess the the theoretical ending is that you have one person at the end who is still paying the power company for their power. 
So this is kind of the the theory that has that has prompted power companies to fight back against people who are trying to um, not just capture their own power through solar, but also kind of create their own management structures that will not just capture that power, but actually hold it and keep it because, of course, you don't have the sun at night. So you need batteries and you need ways to manage your power as you use it. Things that the power company does for you, people want to do that on their own. And and this theory is why power companies have, have generally fought back against against consumers trying to create their own power. Yeah. And when you're talking about kind of small household systems that are capturing and storing power, that's called microgrids, correct? Yeah. Um, the bigger vision of microgrids is that you would have that in your household, but you would also be distributed throughout a community. So, you know, maybe one microgrid, you wouldn't need that kind of system for every household if maybe you all had one little solar farm in the middle of town that everyone shared. So there's a few different visions of, of what a microgrid could be, but yeah, that's that's essentially the building blocks. Yeah. And do you see microgrids as kind of a realistic solution? I know in your piece, you kind of complicated the whole notion. You're like, they're still connected to the big grid, which makes it just a more complicated story. Can you talk a little bit about that? The reason why microgrids are coming up when we're talking about wildfire is uh, PG&E and other power companies are planning to shut off the power to the grid more often in kind of fire risky weather when it is windy and hot and in drought conditions. PG&E specifically is saying that there are many times where they will shut off the power to tens of thousands of, of transmission lines. So that means whole parts of the state could be out of power for a day or a couple of days. And they'll have some warning about that, but they won't necessarily have backup power. And that's inconvenient for a lot of people, um, but it's also potentially life-threatening for people. There's There are people who live on breathing machines, and there's things that you need power for. So certainly some of those things have generators, but a lot of them don't, especially to, to get by for that long period of time. People are talking about installing microgrids as a way to you know, be able to deal with these power shutdowns that, that are expected to be coming more frequently. And it's maybe a way to get at this, this distributed kind of greener power grid at the same time, because if we're going to build these microgrids to make things more resilient in the immediate, that you, we build them slowly over time, we make things more resilient in the future as well, the longer term. But there are a lot of issues with that. They're expensive. And for the short term, they aren't a replacement for the big grid. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of places that are ravaged by fire, I've, I've heard people talking about wanting to go solar. But part of the problem is we don't get to decide when PG&E turns off the power. PG&E decides. And the law currently is that they warn people when they're going to do it. But if we get to a point where we've all got microgrids and we want PG&E to shut off the power, we don't know that PG&E is going to say yes. Right. Um, so there are a ton of reasons why microgrids are great, but I think that th there are a lot of reasons to also be wary about putting all of our hopes in, into this technology when there are so many kind of economic and political hurdles still to get over. 
Yeah. So at the end of your piece, there's a comic that reads, like in the first square, it says, to some degree, this is within our control. And then the last square says, but it's also far beyond. And that is exactly how I felt when I was reading your entire piece. It was like such a huge problem, like this infrastructure problem that just is so so sort of entrenched and huge and is a part of this even bigger problem of climate change that can often feel like untackleable in many ways. That was a very sort of scary way to end the piece, I think. And I'm curious, like how you felt as you were writing and illustrating this story that kind of brings you through all of this information and ends on that note. I mean, I guess I feel like that kind of sums up my attitude throughout our conversation where I feel like I want to say that this one thing is the biggest problem or that this is the way to solve it. But I don't, I don't feel confident in that. I don't think that if we take PG&E over and make it a public entity that is regulated like the roads are, that that will solve all of our problems. I don't think that microgrids will solve all of our problems. Um, I think that fire is is many issues stacking and they all frankly come back to the fact that California is a place with fires and with cyclical droughts and we chose to live in this ecosystem that is not particularly friendly and climate change is just making all of those natural things much more extreme right. much more extreme rainy seasons much more extreme drought and then we put our crappy infrastructure and our wood houses on top of it, there are so many layers of, of problems. And I guess that I, I guess I want, I want to be optimistic. I still live here. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I believe in a, a future for California, but I do think that, um, I think that we would do well to be a little bit more fatalist about, about what we're doing and be a little bit more kind of look that, Look that in the face. Yeah. Our worst fires are not behind us. Right. This is something that we are still living with. And we're still rebuilding in a lot of the same same ways um, with, with, you know, very, very small changes in a lot of these places. I guess that's a, it's a bit of a downer, but um, especially in a comic. Yeah. Um, but um, but I, I think that that's that's the way that I want to deliver a lot of hope that, that there, there are things that we can do. This isn't to say that we are powerless against all of these forces. We are not. But at the same time, we should be realistic about what we're up against. Yeah. And I think your story does a good job of pointing out how kind of we can look at California really as sort of the vanguard of all of the questions that we need to tackle about climate change, which are both practical questions, like about infrastructure, as you bring up, but also existential questions, too. Um, And I think that that came across well in your piece. Do you have any other main takeaways that you would want our listeners to understand about this story? I think kind of back to your point about what what kind of news trickles up into the into the national press. And Mm -hmm. I definitely appreciate why you know, someone living in Chicago doesn't really feel like they need to care about California wildfires. It's not something that affects them. But I think back to um, 
after the campfire, there was a, there was a story in the Washington Post about how the smoke from this fire, this massive fire in California, had blown across the entire country and reached Washington, D.C., and it was filtering the light to make beautiful sunsets. <laughs> people taking pictures of the of the really gorgeous multicolored orangey pink sunsets that were that were created yeah. by the California wildfire smoke and there wasn't a lot of other coverage in the paper <laughs> about the fire um yeah and uh and I feel like that's you know we have that tendency to just think about what's right in front of us right. and um, what, what immediately matters to our lives. And, and I totally get that and I appreciate that. And there's a lot of reality in that. But I think that we should at least be thinking about these things as indicators. You know, what's happening in California might not affect you or anyone you know, but, but it does affect you because this is what climate change looks like. Right. Um, I feel that way about when I see flooding in Texas, when we see the hurricane in Puerto Rico, that might not affect us personally, but these are the effects of climate change, which will and does affect every single one of us. Yeah, I think that that's a a good place to end. Thank you so much, Susie. Thank you. This was a great conversation. You can read the full story at vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And make sure to tune in again on Friday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.